Scrum. Okay, you ready? Yeah. What about Kentucky? Come on back, old buddy. <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Savage Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. And I'm Jonathan. And you're joining us uh, in the middle of uh, season eight. We're, I think we're approaching the big middle somewhere in there. Uh, this is the third episode of season eight. We're covering... Uh, Hawk of the Hills. It's a, a joint from Robert E. Howard, 1935, circa 1935. Is that about right? It's a top-notch story. Top, <laughs> It's top-notch. We're in the middle of our, our road to the east, our journey to the east. That's what we're getting into here. Uh, I think we're excited to talk about another Howard story this time around. I, I certainly am. Cool. I'm, I'm all kinds of excited coming off of uh, the last story. Um, this is like a, a breath of fresh air. Cool. What, we just uh, can't quit him. In what in what method or or means did you all read this story, John? The Robert E. Howard L. Borak and Other Desert Adventures by the Delray Collection, folks. Illustrated by Tim Bradstreet and Jim and Ruth Keegan. Man, thank you, Mrs. Delray. Much appreciated. That's not Desert Adventures? Mm, no, it's not. Oh. I ordered it <laughs> thinking that it was like uh, adventurous desserts, you know, Howard-themed Des- Howard themed stressed spelled backwards. <laughs> it's true. That's how I always remember it. How did you read it, Josh? I got it on the Gutenberg. Uh, I initially started reading the Delray on my Kindle and forgot my Kindle at home and had some downtime at work. So I was able to read the rest of it. So I used the Gutenberg. The Aust- Goody. Thanks, Australia. Thanks, Australia. I read it in uh, uh, Girasol Collectibles edition blood of the gods and other stories this is a uh, a trade paperback or a uh, a paperback one of those larger size paperbacks it's not like a it's not like a you know not a digest dime. size paperback not a dime store not a dime store no uh but i got that whenever we were doing howard days that was one of the 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 bits of loot that i stuffed in my sack yeah man so, did you get a howard book at that random bookstore in vancouver uh i did not don't say anything else about that. <laughs> What's that? Don't 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 say anything else about that. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I did not. I picked up I picked up two two books from that uh, that crazy ass bookstore in Vancouver, British Columbia. But one of them was Josh's Christmas present, so we can't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> so ixnay. But but the other one, and I can't talk about that. I bought uh, Clive Barker's. Uh, oh, what's Hellraiser? The Oh, the, the Hellbound Heart. The Hellbound Heart. Yeah, so I bought that was the paperback that I picked up there. What did you get at that place, John? I got a book on Mounties. Of course. And a book on Poutine? What's that? No, it wasn't on Poutine. I didn't want to go like full stereotypes of Canada. Um it was a mystery book. I can't remember the title of it now, but it sounded intriguing when I saw it on the shelf. It sounds mysterious. It is mysterious at this point. <laughs> So I'm I'm 
quickly googling the name of that place uh mcleod's books, McLeod's books in oh. downtown vancouver of the clan mcleod <laughs> clan mcleod 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 of the clan mcleod <laughs> it is the oldest uh bookstore in vancouver and it kind of blew my mind i mean i've been into some old bookstores and i've been into some some uh like hoarder dens before but man that place it was it was something else it was a, a treasure to behold next floor level. to ceiling floor to ceiling books everywhere and john just as just as you experienced and you kind of warned me about like i came in and the guy asked me what i was looking for and he pointed me to a handful of stacks and that's kind of where i stayed <laughs> is that what is that what happened with you uh, he didn't look at me or ask me anything because he was kind of engulfed with other questions. I, I got a, a third book. It was about Anna Botsford Comstock, so I was in the bug section too. Oh, yeah, that's right, because it was yeah. like an old bug book that you were looking for, right? Yeah. Uh, no, and then he was telling – like he knew where everything was. He could just point and say like, oh, that pile over there, insane, you'll find. man. Yeah. He fielded a phone call and went over to some rando stack and like pulled an edition of like, I don't know, some some general like – popular literary fiction from the 80s or 90s and he's like oh yeah we have it right here and we've got this edition and it's a fairly good edition because of reasons x y and z uh it was really crazy like that guy fielded those kinds of phone calls he also fielded a couple uh this is the owner of the place fielded a couple phone calls about people that were wanting to sell like smaller collections and he was just quickly saying yeah bring it in or no it's not worth my time and then here's the topper i don't know if i told this to you john or to to you josh but he intercepted a uh well like what do you call uh like not pickpockets but people that were uh, coming into the store and were about ready to start stealing stuff, like basically a work shoplifters. Yeah, like like a shoplifting crew of two of two women came in and they their stories didn't add up. And he knew enough. He basically caught them before they got about fifteen twenty feet into the store. They came in and they were clearly a little bit uh, disheveled. And he said, "Hey, how can I help you?" Uh, and one of the shoplifters said. I'm looking for a book for my brother who's getting ready to graduate from med school, he's, she said. And he was like, oh, well, we unfortunately don't have any, any, medical, any medical books. She's like, oh, it's okay. He doesn't really read that kind of thing anyway. And they kept walking. And I didn't notice it because I had my head like in the, the – you know, like the, the, the SF and the fantasy section. <laughs> and, and he said, no, no, that's it. And he basically kicked them out. But as he was kicking them out, there was a younger guy that was like sorting books and stuff. And he probably was like a college student, but he was talking to him and he basically said, you have to catch these people before they start separating because otherwise one of them will keep you busy talking and the other one will start putting stuff in their, in their pockets or in their, in their bags or whatever. But he, this dude totally knew the shoplifter scam, like kick huh. the two shoplifters out, watch them walk across the street uh, to another location. And then he proceeded to pick up the phone. And there's a couple other used bookstores in that vicinity. And he called both of the other two venues and like warned them that, Hey, there were like shoplifters on the prowl. It was super intense for being in McLeod's books, <laughs> which is basically like a hoarder like bookstore yeah, in downtown it's, Vancouver. It's weird. It's like, uh, uh, what's the remake of the movie, the art thief movie that Pierce Brosnan's in? 
the Thomas Crown yeah, affair. The Thomas, the Thomas Crown <laughs> affair happened at McLeod's books. <laughs> this was uh oh man, I mean, but it's that's an urban setting, and I'm not someone that's super well versed with like truly like urban storefronts. I mean, I I still kind of get a kick and feel like I'm experiencing things in a new way when I'm like in a in a true blue like real urban environment i i love that feeling but i'm also do realize that i'm a little bit of a i mean i'm a i'm a grown-ass man in my mid-30s but i'm also a little bit of a fish out of the water in those types of settings just because it's not how i've i've not grown up in a true like metropolitan area we're hayseeds but i i love it <laughs> yeah i'm a <laughs> i'm a country mouse in the city in that situation it was cool what if they were what if that guy had a grimoire like like the Necronomicon, and they were hired by a, a cult to steal that book, and that's what they were trying to do. Man. And he may have averted the end of the world. I mean, he'd have a chainsaw hand or something that was obvious of his station, wouldn't he? Uh, well. And he was a, a soft-spoken, older Vancouver, Vancouverian. Is that what you, British, British Columbian? Uh, this guy... <laughs> He was he was he was nice. He was what uh just pleased his punch that I was in there looking at the books. He was a nice guy. <laughs> happy you were visiting and happy, happy you were leaving. Yeah. And he had he had a lot of good things to say about all of the various students that were there for the entomology conference. He even remarked again to the guy that was stacking books and stuff that a lot of the entomology folks were really well behaved and they were a good crowd because they bought some books. We're not a rowdy bunch. Including that one fellow that bought that book by Comstock. <laughs> yes, I remember. <laughs> I quite remember that man. In the Mountie book. <laughs> In the Mountie book. Uh, I'm sorry I got us sidetracked on shoplifters and bookstores. Well, that's that's I, what happens, though, when you sign me up to start the <laughs> show up, dude. I think it's perfect. <laughs> okay, let's Thank do you, the... Uh, to true, true Crime Tales cast. <laughs> yeah, we're a true crime. Use bookstores. Dude, we're going to blow up now because I'm going to re-up our <laughs> category on iTunes from literature to true crime, and then this this show is going to take off and we're going to be famous. The folks Eat your heart out, in. cereal. Right. <laughs> Hey, John John. Hey, Luke Luke. <laughs> what are you drinking? I have Wild Turkey 101. Nice. Hey, Josh. I have West Sixth Brewing. Nice. Amber Ale. Proud and independent right here in Lexington, Kentucky. You're sharing one of those with me. I appreciate that. Of course. Yeah. I've got a few more. I treasure our friendship. I treasure our friendship, Luke. I have uh, a bottle of Knob Creek. Single barrel that we can that we can get a little bit of and put it on some ice if we want here in a little bit too. That's what we're nice. drinking. That sounds delightful. How about can we uh, can we cue up the little one thing music and do that? One thing. Good stuff. Oh. I'm going to keep going over on the other side of the big river. John, what do you have? Two rivers. I'm on the other side of two rivers. Count them up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one thing is going to be something from the internet that I enjoy at this time of year. There is a fellow who the podcast knows. He's famous in Lexington and in certain comic book circles. He goes by the name Benito Serino. And he has a cool Tumblr called Burgeoning Lads of Science. He is sort of a Christmas folklorist, and he loves 
sharing some of his knowledge in this Yuletide season in which we are recording. And at this time of year, he does an alphabet of Christmas. And every day he posts with the help of an artist named Chuck uh, Nige, I'm going to go with, K-N-I-G-G-E, that they do some art and then a little write-up of various different Christian folklore characters. So I'm going to go with J since my name starts with J. So J is for Yultomten, who stacks the hay, and he's a type of Swedish gnome that if you don't leave out porridge for him on Christmas Eve, he will destroy your farm equipment, tie your cow's tails together, and maybe even kill your farm animals. Damn. You also have to make sure that butter is on top. One time, a family put the butter on the bottom, and the Tomtun killed the family's best cow. When he got to the bottom of the bowl, he felt bad and searched the countryside for a replacement cow. So save yourself and the Tomtun some trouble and just put the effing butter on top, says Benito Serena. (laughs) (laughs) Benito's Christmas stuff is always great. Remember when our friends um, Justin Stewart and Tressa did the podcast Boku Pop? I do. Uh, Benito was on that show and that's where I learned about the Yule lads. Ah, yes. Yeah. I had never heard of them before. They'll steal your spoons. That's right. Yeah. They'll steal your spoons. They'll swipe your sausages. Do all kinds of unsavory things. But it's just fun to read through. I love folklore and I love Christmas time. And so if you want to learn about some of the different saints or different mythical creatures that are associated with sort of pagan elements of this time of year as well, I just think it's a really cool thing to read about in the dead of winter to learn about all this magic that we dream up to make it feel more exciting than perhaps it really is when there's snow on the ground and gray skies. Don't you think Benito is a pagan element of Christmas? Maybe. I actually did. I think that you talked about him last episode, right? And his uh, podcast, Apocrypals? A few episodes ago, yeah. A so, few episodes ago. Yeah, definitely. Everyone check out Apocrypals. It's... Uh, Benito and uh, Chris, Chris Sims, Sims, who uh, go through the Bible, not in any kind of discernible order that I've been able to pick up. Like it's not uh, from Genesis through Revelations, but yeah, go, go check out uh, Apocrypals. Cool. Have you listened? I have not. You should check it out. Mike from Bourbon and Barbarians is a fan as well. Great. I pick Luke to go next. This guy. I am going to uh, talk about a an RPG module. You brought up Bourbon and Barbarians. It's been on my, my mind as of late. I'm not for sure exactly how this episode is going to shake out amidst a couple other Bourbon and Barbarians episodes, but as it stands right now, I've basically I'm I'm wrapping up editing of the 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 closeout of the second like season campaign module whatever we want to call for the bourbon and barbarians so i'm thinking about uh next steps and where we're gonna go that kind of thing and so uh good friend of the show mr levi combs sent us a module he's a buddy of mine from way back he and i were playing uh rpgs back when back when i was in high school he's a guy that i grew up with uh, he is a well-traveled dude and has lived a many-storied life. Uh, and one of the many things that Levi does is uh, put together RPG materials on top of a variety of other uh, esoteric 
materials, but but Levi is I, I think he's he's the sole he's the driver. I don't know if sole driver is the appropriate way, but he's the driver of a company called Planet X Games recently started and he ran a Kickstarter uh for his first module which is called Jungle Tomb of the Mummy Bride and so he so he sent us a a review copy of that which was super duper nice uh and the, the PDF of this is 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 dense and awesome i i really can say like in all honesty beyond like having having received uh, the materials direct from Levi and him being a buddy of mine from way back. Uh, stuff's legit. Guy, the guy, it's it's really good. If you are looking to purchase any sort of Dungeons and Dragons or RPG uh, modules in the in the vein of like Grindhouse style is how he sells it, but basically in a in an OSR OSR style. Or on the basis of uh, sort of a jungle theme, uh, it's that's that's going to be your jam. It is old school goodness. Like I haven't looked at the module yet, but I've looked at some of the preview materials and some of the stuff that Levi's posted on various Facebook groups. And and uh, man, it just looks so great. Yeah. So it is. Uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a crazy uh it's a module outright but really the thing that i would argue that that is the main benefit of these materials and so so this thing it ran through kickstarter and so there are hard copies and pdfs that went out to the supporters that, that back the project that way but it's also available on drive through rpg and we'll put the link out uh within the show notes uh so it is in the vein of some of the early AD&D first edition uh, and even the basic I'm, I'm spacing on the basic uh, uh, sort of hex crawl module that sort of, sort of lays the foundation but this is like the type of setting where you might run into like uh, like headhunter like natives and also run into uh, undead that would give you mummy rot and then also run into a T-Rex that would want to like rip your face off. Those are all of the various like crazy D&D encounters that you would run in this kind of setting. So really the, the benefits or the, the bonus of the module and the thing that I would, that I would promote on the basis of these materials is beyond the straightforward uh, module where you go through and are going to be able to encounter the mummy bride the way that Levi sort of wraps things up, like the module itself has loads of extra material. So the module is like 66 pages. And if you know, if you've ever read any like standard gaming modules, they run two thirds of that. So you get an extra 50% or a third, like 33% more material. That's essentially like a mini campaign setting. So if you defeat the, 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 uh, the big bad, of the module and then you want to sort of jump off into further adventures. Levi does enough, uh, window dressing and place setting to set up a world where you can do that. And I think that's the real sort of cool thing about the, the module that's available is that there's a lot of extra stuff to provide additional adventures beyond just the standard, like here's 
levels one through three of this dungeon out in the jungle. Like there's uh, lots of satellite installations and uh, opportunities for further adventuring, which is cool. I also know that Levi's planning this to be uh, one of maybe a trilogy of modules and the second one is in the works. My hope is that we'll be able to talk with Levi in the future too about some of his some of his activities. So stay tuned with that. But but really, if you're into OSR style materials, the Bourbon and Barbarian, Bourbon and Barbarian style materials, or just crazy like uh, jungle sort of like cannibal exploitation style like cannibal <laughs> holocaust <laughs> adventures like crazy horror then then this thing would be for you it's set for 5e uh dnd 5e as far as like the, the the mechanics but it i think it would be easily adaptable so it's fun that's awesome it seems like uh more and more often you see uh game designers who are uh, creating these modules, creating them to be um, modular, as, as the name might imply, and uh, creating them for replayability in mind. And, you know, that's awesome. That's that's just more bang for your buck if you pick up, you know, this module on Drive-Thru RPG and you run it with your group. And uh, someday, maybe uh, a year or two down the road, you start over and you, you use this as the beginning of a campaign again, right. but you, you're able to run it a different way. Like that, that is just really cool and a, a good sign of some solid game design. Yeah. And it's, you know, Levi is, he's old school in his flavor. I mean, as the, the, the content that I've talked through here kind of pro, like, uh, would, would lead you to believe, but the presentation of the materials is, is solid. There's there's a whole wide variety of of tables. If you're into rolling some percentiles or some d20s to get some various encounters set up, there's a lot of that kind of material. The art's pretty awesome. One of the guys that has done the art on this module, his name's John Russell. He's another one of the the guys that I kind of like like cut my teeth on playing D and D and some of the base RPG materials with him. He's another one of the guys that I played games with in high school. He does amazing art. Uh, and then, uh, within the OSR community, there's a guy named Carl, uh, Stenberg and he does phenomenal dungeon cartography. He's one of the, one of the big dudes, uh, within the, the, the OSR sort of, uh, open source dungeons that you can, that you can see all around. So, I mean, the, there's just lots of good materials. Whether or not you actually want to play this module, and I think you would want to, there's a there's a kick-ass treasure trove worth of campaign material. So if you're wanting to play something tropical or something just bonkers, OSR kitchen sink style, this would be a good module to pick up just for raw like fodder for your own uh, sandbox. So get it. Yeah. What are you waiting for? <laughs> Josh, uh, what is your one thing, dude? Uh, back in May... Uh, May 9th, 2018, we posted <laughs> season six, episode eight. We were a much younger, we were a younger cohort, more foolish, more reckless. <laughs> this is season six, episode eight, bizarre of the bizarre. And my one thing was that I had started playing final fantasy six. Uh huh. Status report this week. I brought Kefka down <laughs> and, um, I just, you know, I'm going to rehash some things about that game, but it just is so rife with theme and emotion, uh, feelings of, of regret and sorrow and acceptance and, uh, failure. Like, yeah, I'm 
going to maybe spoil part of this game at, at this point, but it is a very old game. Um, your party, unlike other RPGs of the time, you do not save the world. You don't save the world. Um, about halfway through it, uh, uh, sort of keys into the, what would be the end game sequence in other RPGs. Right. And you move into what looks like a final boss battle. And every part of you, if you've played other games like this, tells you this is it. And then it's not it. And there's a whole another half of the game that you play. And, uh, it just is, it's so good. And, um, the, the last boss, uh, the final form of Kefka, is just so artfully designed. It's, it's designed to be this uh, four-tiered boss. And when you go into the battle, you don't form one party uh, with your 14 or however many characters you recruit in this massive game. Right. You r- rank them from number one to number 14. Uh, and as... People drop as you lose characters in this battle. The next person in your queue comes into your party. And so do you start with your number one through four or uh, do you start from the the, the other end? Of I started with my number one through four. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you move into the first tier and you move your way up. And, and the way the art looks, I'll post a link to some of these screenshots of this this boss. Um, there's a thematic link between this boss and uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Okay. And so the bottom tier represents Inferno, and then the second tier represents Purgatory, and then the third tier represents Paradise, and then you fight Kefka, who kind of floats down from the heavens, and he's an angel. Uh Um, And unlike in Dante's story, where... Uh, uh, Dante meets God and God tells Dante the meaning of life and, and how you're supposed to love and receive love. Kefka tells you that everything is meaningless and that there is no joy to be had and there's only death waiting for you. And then you fight him and then, uh, the game is over, but he's already won. Like the, the world uh, as it used to be is no more. The continents have completely shifted in this cataclysm and, um, the world that you've been living in since that point is poisoned and slowly dying. And so the game ends without you really knowing, did we save the world or did we just stop Kefka too late? It's, it's so well done. Um, I just think it flips JRPG tropes on their heads and, uh, playing through it again this year, even though it took me forever to get through it. Um, boy, it was rewarding. So, uh, I'll say again, this is my final plea. Go pick up Final Fantasy VI or just play a, a retro game that you haven't played in a while and uh, play through that. So do you know how many hours you logged this time through? I do not. I'm not sure. I didn't look at that. Um, I, I know I did a substantial amount of level grinding because uh, just getting to the final boss is just a gauntlet and it's hard. And so I made sure that I had at least six or seven pretty beefy, powerful characters such that if I had some fall in battle, like it uh-huh. wouldn't be the end. So who was your, 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 your squad of four that you started with? Yeah. So, uh, I had Tara who is the, the main, the, the first character you recruit in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Celeste, who is, uh, the, probably the actual best magic user in the game. Um, and then, uh, Sabin, 
who is a physical powerhouse and um uh Locke who is the the thief. Okay. I remember liking Locke and Celeste. We may have covered this ground before. Like Celeste was the one that I enjoyed playing the most. I, I can't remember why the story like I never got I I got like close to where the world turns. Mm-hmm. Uh but I remember being the most compelled by her story. Yeah, she's great. She she is uh basically kicked out of the empire because uh-huh. she refuses to follow these orders and yeah there's there's this uh misogynistic quality to the way the empire deals with her that is uh pretty mature i think for a super nintendo game cool yeah this oh man it just it it uh it's the best it is the best some good things that yeah. we just talked about <laughs> <laughs> so that was an expansive, expansive one thing, but all of those things are worth it. We put it all together, we give it to you, and we call it one thing. All right, it's time for a little uh, meat and potatoes. I like meat. I like meat and potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I like them boiled. Bowl, bowl them, roll them. Tea. No beef, just <laughs> you're, lamb. You're the you're Willoughby. <laughs> you're Willoughby. You're Willoughby. You're, you were British. You're a last Willoughby. stop at Willoughby. That's a Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's a really sad Twilight Zone episode. Which one is that? That's the one where the guy gets on the train and uh, he gets off in this this utopian kind of little town called Willoughby. Uh-huh. Everything is is really nice, and uh, the the end of the episode, something not so nice happens to the guy. And you're not sure whether you should be happy or sad for him. <laughs> oh, Twilight Zone. I mean, it makes yeah. you so happy and sad. It's conflicting like Final Fantasy six. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hawk of the Hills. That's what we're talking about here. It's a little bit more straight ahead. I would say uh, there's not so much melancholy that no. weaves its way into this story. <laughs> <laughs> Nor. Uh, oh, what's the word? Like the. Uh, the U catastrophe or the, those types of concepts here. We've got, uh, El Borak. We have a British man. We have a convoluted plot, man. This plot is, I realize it's relatively straightforward, but man, it's, uh, well, we'll just talk about it. So, okay. So this is Hawk of the Hills. That's what we're talking about. 1935. That's where it came out and top notch, right? That's right. That's the venue. Uh, we're going to do our, Let's talk around the around the plot with three topical conversation points. Okay, uh, we've got uh, maybe fifty words or less. Like, what's the what's the overall narrative that we see here? I'll do it in one. Do it in one. Okay. In Revenge. One. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. This is not about king making or king breaking or. Uh, you know, saving the 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 path through the wilderness so that riches can come through from India or anything like that. This is a far baser story, I think, when you boil it down to its key elements. Basically, if we were going to do it in fifty words or less, yeah. El Borak's friends are murdered by a mm, upstart duke of this region. And he decides that he's going <laughs> to stop counting. <laughs> he 
is going to get revenge on them, but his revenge scheme takes years, it seems, and it interferes <laughs> with British politics. Uh-huh. And so Willoughby, a man who is with the British intelligence, is sent to broker a peace to open trade again. And El Borak finds a way to use Willoughby to his own ends. Right. So I'll go ahead and drop my my number one talking point for for this story. And I don't necessarily think that it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just this is what it is. This story, I think, is like the worst of a James Bond movie where you have an overly wrought plot that uh, takes you through a variety of circumstances. But really, at the end of it all, there's a couple statements by a couple good and bad dudes that <laughs> spell out like what, what went down. If you like the ride, you like it. And I like the, the setting of the story, but it is an overwrought uh, narrative. That's my hot take. What do you guys think? You're overwrought. <laughs> You're an overwrought hot take. Whoa. Uh, a hot steaming pile of I, disagreement on you. I will say, <laughs> I will say that I did not have nearly the negative, uh, or, or nearly the, the same reaction as you had Luke, uh-huh. but, uh, I'm of two minds about it. One, is some of the pros in this are some top notch and that pun is not intended but Robert E. Howard. So here we're in the first chapter and we have El Borak climbing up a cliff and uh it says um <laughs> his fingers clawed at the stone until blood oozed from under his broken nails. Rivulets of gravel started beneath his boots and streamed down the ledges. He was almost there but under his toe, a jutting stone began to give way with an explosive expansion of energy that brought a tortured gasp from him. He lunged upward just as his foothold tore from the soil that had held it for one sickening instant. He felt eternity yawn beneath him. Then his upflung fingers hooked over the rim of the crest. I mean, come on. He felt eternity yawn beneath him. That is baller. That is awesome. Uh, so evocative. And there are a few other examples um, of, of some, uh, some nice words, I guess that uh, Howard used in the story. So, so that's, that's one mind that I have. The other is um, it is unfortunate that El Borak knows everything that's going to happen in the story. Like he has the authorial voice mm-hmm. and um, then toward the end when Willoughby finds out from um, the, uh, the major villain in the piece that everything is as El Borak said it was uh-huh. using the same verbiage that El Borak used. That's a little lazy and, and is kind of a bummer. So narratively, yes, I, I somewhat agree that the story has some issues but man, some of the writing is some of Howard's best. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with the with your your points there. I don't. I guess my comment. I'm not saying that. Uh, in a total bad perspective, 
I myself did not necessarily become super engaged with like the plot that was playing here playing out here i mean i can sympathize and i like the vengeance that we see that sort of flavors el borak but all of the other machinations that other folks feel was lost on me and the best comparison i can make with this story again is like uh a james bond movie where Mm. you have a load of different characters within that story, and the the movie is long. There's a, a number of different circumstances and narrative devices, but you know, 007's got it figured out and is going to be able to sort of work all of the like all of the cogs within the machine, and that's that's what plays out. I absolutely love James Bond movies, though, and I love <laughs> I love the great scenery. I mm. love to see the actors chewing the scenery and they are beautiful spectacles. And this is, I think an awesome spectacle of a story. Uh, so that's, that's me. I don't really mean that as much of a hot take other than just an observation <laughs> of like the framework of the, of the, the narr- the narrative structure. So, so maybe look at him pour water on his take. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, no, check out my hot take. Yeah. You guys, <laughs> I, I, it's not, I didn't mean it as a hot take. It's just, I found myself multiple times because the story is not short. No, it is long. It's a long story. <laughs> and at multiple points I found myself and I only read it over like three sittings. Mm-hmm. I found myself thinking now what's the story up to this point. Right. With names of people names of places and what the hell's going on and to howard's credit he has a variety of instances where he re reaffirms or respells out a variety of plot points to keep you on track and that is helpful because in absence of those you would be lost yeah okay so yeah, I guess I that would be one of my things was i felt i was reading a little bit of like a golden age silver age kind of comic there's a couple of <laughs> diatribes that are very exposition-y. Yeah. Uh, those were a couple things that I, I didn't care about, but I also wasn't completely disengaged from the story over them because I was 100% on board with this revenge tale. Like The minute I saw what was happening, I was, I was hooked. Uh, I love these kinds of stories. I don't know why, but a combination of having some Tim Bradstreet illustrations mixed in here – and just the general feel of this reminded me of a Punisher Max series oh, that I read okay. where Frank Castle goes to Afghanistan with his like sort of girlfriend, Kate O'Brien, at one point, And they get into a fight with some Russian operatives and she's killed. And it's his mission to find these people and murder them. And he swears it in a cave in the Afghani mountains. And so just that he Tim Bradstreet did the covers for all of these issues and this mixture. If I was like, this is a Punisher story. It it, it felt like that sort of thing. And I'm on board with that. So I liked I liked it. Uh, If we're doing our our broad strokes thing, I was on board with this story, even though it was a little overwrought and long. I I, I dig that. So with sidetrack for the Punisher story. So in that Punisher Max story. So basically the Punisher gets like re-motivated in that 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 series to to extract even more vengeance uh so i guess what i would say is 
he's been caught up in some international affairs. Uh-huh. So in the I don't have you read the Punisher Max stuff uh, at all? I have uh bits and pieces and yeah, like like a like a fair amount but not not all of the Ennis stuff. Not all. Of, okay. Like I've read So the there's first... one set where he and an American operative break into a nuclear silo in Russia. Uh-huh. And then they escape in a nuclear missile. And it's this like big set piece. It's really cool. Uh-huh. And there's a Russian character in that name, General Nikolai Alexandrovich uh-huh. Zakharov, the Man of Stone. And the Man of Stone storyline that comes up later in Afghanistan is him trying to sort of put a put a piece of finality on Frank Castle. He wants okay. him to admit what he did, so he can embarrass America. So is and this, so an, is this Frank an... takes oh. O'Brien with him to Afghanistan. She gets killed, and he gets even angrier <laughs> somehow. <laughs> Man, I love that. Is yeah. this an Ennis story, or is this something it else? It is. It's okay. Garth Ennis, yeah. Well, now you've got me all like hyped up to go read some Punish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like there are some Elborak flavors within the Punisher, or some maybe I guess what I mean is Punisher flavors within this Elborak study, reading it as a, as a modern reader that was the feeling I got, but I definitely see the bond aspect as well. There's a couple of bond revenge films, aren't there? Yeah, for sure. And I guess my, my criticism in my, uh, previous sort of point was I don't see enough of El Borak spelling out his, uh, motivations throughout the story. Like he's making smart choices and he's, I don't. I don't know. I, I. I feel like there needed to be more emotion, and I know we're not. This is this is a story that's absent of any women, right? Mm-hmm. Like unless I'm True. misremembering, there's 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 nary a single like double X chromosome in the story. I don't it's, think so. <laughs> so so it is uh, hard scrabble depictions of men fighting and men like playing one another like chess pieces like that's the way it plays out and it seemed a little bit antiseptic and i wanted a little bit more i don't know either quieter notes or i don't know moments of emotion that are more emoting (laughs) i sound like such a like a such a little weenie here like (laughs) i just wanted more emotions on the page i don't know i don't know i no, i see what you're saying it's definitely some competency porn like we've seen with some other that's perfect that's a a great description dude yeah el borak knows what is happening at all times he sees the board and he he's playing everybody I and like, nobody knows it. And that's that's a that's a great comparison. And I, I do like those kinds of stories too, right? Like you like to see the smartest dude in the room uh making the best choices, or you like to see the the woman that's got it all figured out that's like playing every single card and building that house. You want to see you want to see how that all plays out. Uh yeah. I don't know. Josh, what do you think? Uh well, so I was gonna ask if uh before i get to my point because i don't want to change the subject here what other howard story is like this or or what other story that we've read for the show is like this or if we need to expand it out what story did this remind you of outside of those parameters you know besides the uh punisher 
<laughs> but I, I guess what I'm thinking of is like the trope of the character that knows everything, mm-hmm. you know, is able to see. I, broad I see. View. A, I see a couple of tropes. There's that competency competency trope. There's also the the brave Apache war band okay. war style kind of trope, right? This small band of fighters fighting an overwhelming force. So you could go with Red Dawn, okay, or I mean, totally like Bastards. or like the the Battle of Thermopylae too. Like yeah, three hundred. The, right. the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. holding of the hot gates too. I was just wondering, yeah. like, what what other competency slash you know small band stories did this kind of remind you of? So, my thing maybe fits in here, and that is, I was thinking about El Borak last story as a Conan analog, but right. now I've changed my mind, and now I think El Borak, even though he has the barbarous sort of approach that that uh conan has uh-huh uh he is anti-conan he's the anti-conan here's why i'm gonna read to you the third verse from the road of kings hit me what do i know of cultured ways the guilt the craft and the lie i who was born in a naked land and bred in the open sky the subtle tongue the sophist guile they fail when the broadswords sing Russian and die dogs. I was a man before I was a king. El Borak is the sophist in this. Like he's he's sneaky. He's a conniving planner. He is uh, yeah. he's the civilized man displaced into um, this barbaric setting. Um, and, and I don't want to go too far to say that he's like a oh, oh he's a foppish gentleman. He's not. He's a Texas gunfighter, and he's not even really roguish all that far in terms of like he's not he's a, he's more of a moral character but he, willoughby nails it he says uh gordon was no bluffing adventurer he was a real chief of men and that willoughby realized was going to make his own job that much harder and that's that's interesting if we are making this parallel comparison between borak and conan because conan doesn't really play people the way that borak plays willoughby right at least to my memory, he doesn't. He leads, he motivates, he reacts a lot, but never really does Conan seem like he is uh, the the he is competent, but he doesn't have the same far-reaching uh, foresight that El Borak has. Yeah, and so I'm thinking too, like Conan is someone that can read read the lay of the land. He can predict what his opponent's doing. He sees where things are going, but right. He's not necessarily the user right. that we're seeing here. And, uh, without Willoughby, right. And without the plot to use Willoughby to, to draw out, uh, is it off Khan? Is that the, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the villain without that, then, you know, it would have been a long drawn out siege that would have played out over months or even closer to a year, right? right. This story, uh, without Willoughby as the, uh, like he is the, to, to make a chess analogy, this is like the, the sacrificing the queen, right. To get the yeah. opponent's King. Conan wouldn't have done that, I guess is my point. Like th- this, 
this story has changed my mind that El Borak is another Conan. He's not. I mean, I think you're. I think you're right. He's he is a different character too. Because I mean, there's flavors of the uh, what's the right word? Retributive. Like the retributive. Like he's the he's he's Solomon Kane-ish, right? Mm-hmm. He's a vengeance character. But man, Solomon Kane, I think, operates on a more emotional level. I'm saying that offhand. Like like Solomon Kane, we we see how he's a surgeon with the sword, mm-hmm. but it seems like he is very much willed by emotions, and it seems like Elborak here is motivated. Uh, I don't. He's. I said it before, like antiseptic, but maybe just like. Like he's he seems less emotional with some of his decisions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's a different. Maybe it's. I think there's differences with the the quality of Howard's writing about Kane, or I should say, the setting of the Kane stories. Those are grounded in horror, mm-hmm. and this is not. <laughs> this right. is grounded in a historical uh, situation. So maybe much of the emotion that I'm like ascribing to to Solomon Kane is a consequence of like the type of story that Howard's telling there. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the difference that I'm seeing. Uh, I don't know. But. I, maybe because I had the thought that after I finished this, um, I, I didn't enjoy it as much as some of the Conan and some of the Solomon Kane. And I started thinking about why that was. And as I was reflecting, it occurred to me that, Solomon Kane has weird elements. Yeah. Conan has weird elements. This story has none of that. Uh-huh. Like it, it is a very kind of cut and dry, uh, revenge tale through and through. And that's not to take away from it. That's not a detractor. I, I did enjoy the story. I just, uh, it, I, I would go further and say it's a political revenge tale. Like to me, and that's the, that's the complication that made the narrative more difficult to track the whole way through was the political, this side, that side. Right. It's almost like watching, uh, oh, uh, what's the Charlie's Theron, uh, like, uh, spy movie. Atomic Blonde. Atomic Blonde. Like, there's a lot of back and forth across the, the Cold War materials there that are this side playing that side. Like once you get to the point where you get doubles and triple crosses, you know, it starts to make your head hurt. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what you see with <laughs> the way that El Borax playing like the, the, the crosses and how he's using the Brit. Like some of the mission impossible movies even. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you were a good guy a second ago, but now you're a bad guy. <laughs> Guess but, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's not even your real face. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I think what makes, I guess what sold me on it, what made it very interesting to me is the fact that in in a Conan story, I think we would have seen Conan advancing his career as a king, perhaps, if a, if we had a story like this. Whereas being a leader of all, all these people, being a tribal leader to El Borak is nothing but a means to an end. Like, I bet that the next story after this is he just, like, leaves town or something. He He doesn't stick around to, to lead a war. He's just in it for this one kill, no matter what it takes to get there. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And so what do you think about like the final lines 
that the Brit offers. Damn it, man, if you hadn't saved my life so often in the past 48 hours, I'd be inclined to use bad language, dot, 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 dot. A few <laughs> years at this rate, and you'll be the Amir of Afghanistan. Like, he's he's kind of, like, trying to ascribe that, that, that position that Conan has. But, uh... But I agree with you. We wouldn't see that if we were dealing with an Elborak focused narrative. It's just not. Yeah, I think that you can't from what I can see of this character right now. I don't see what that story would look like where he ascends that high in the political realm, because I feel like at that point he would just close off Afghanistan. There'd be no British impact on or Soviet invasion in the future because they'd be afraid the ghost of El Borak would come down yeah. from the hills and get them. He's, he's too cool for school. He can't, he can't be in charge. So at this point, I'm inclined to think that with El Borak, he's almost, he's the monkey wrench. He's the wild card that gets thrown into things the way we're seeing him presented, which is a little bit different. Like we get some, larger bits of resolution if we look at all of the various solomon kane narratives about him working towards some sort of redemption or some sort of like evening the playing field uh that's different than the stories we've only read two Mm -hmm. admittedly right but with el borak here he seems to be the the monkey the monkey wrench that gets thrown into the works within the larger world and so i'm wondering if we'll ever see more than el borak as this uh texan that's operating on the the peripheries of of any sort of civilization and is just someone there to sort of screw up the works yeah i'm not sure um you know howard i i believe in my research for this season, Howard had been writing fragments of Elborak stories more or less since he was in high school. Uh-huh. So for a long time. Um, and so this one, I think, uh, is one of five that were published. And I don't know about the other ones. I, you know, we haven't read them, but I, I am not sure that they, are a cohesive narrative. I don't think we see any kind of character arc that would lead us to think that, right. that he would become this Amir of Afghanistan or, or anything beyond a, you know, uh, rough and tumble, uh, Texas gunfighter who is very good at organizing and, and motivating this particular group of people. It's sad to me to say this, but at this point, two stories in the way that I would see, the final materials written about El Borak, the character within like the, the larger myth would be him fading into the unknown or meeting some uncertain demise as opposed to having a clearer end to the story and some level of success or like non-success in a, in a, a, a greater narrative arc for some of the other uh, like Conan or Cole or Solomon Kane, the various Howard heroes. Like, like he can't be a part of the future that's coming for this region where Russia and Britain pacify it to an extent. So he just kind of fades away. 
Yeah, and not necessarily in the mythic quality that like Bran McMorrin is. No, no, no. Like he just he can't handle it. Yeah. Yeah, there's no place for him. He's yeah, right. There's no Wild West to conquer anymore. Yeah. Which is very sad. It's it's that kind of trope of a person that is not uh an insider anywhere. Yeah. This is very sad. <laughs> wow. Well, we've done one round of, of things. Uh, was that really one round? That was no, one. I, yeah. That was one we did, but that was that was a that was a, a, a that was a hearty, tasty mm. bit of, of material there. So we've done a round. Let's go ahead and, and, and do maybe one more round again because I feel like we're having a pretty good discussion here of of some items that that stood out to us in terms of how the story's put together. One of the things that I really noted, and, and Josh almost got into quoting some of this text earlier, but basically on the second page of my copy of the story, so just about five or six paragraphs into the story, <laughs> Howard writes thus, Scenery, however awesome, is but a background for the human drama in its varying phases. And up to that point, Howard had this incredible bit of prose spelling out the blood oozing underneath nails, this man like leaping across yawn, yawning expanses of space and and holding on to these rocks it's it really is like you made the the comparison earlier josh to like a mission impossible type film like it's it's that it's tom cruise like jumping across <laughs> expanses oh, yeah you know in mo like moab <laughs> like crazy crazy scenes with big rocks uh like you get a sense of the landscape and the scenery of this story and i think howard there's a clever thing in that very first portion of the story of saying, I'm throwing down some really great prose, but at the same time, I want to like undermine my descriptions of the landscape and try to ground things with the emotions that I'm trying to spell out here. I don't know if he actually follows through and, and nails that. I feel like if he would come back to that point a couple times over the story, it would have been more effective but the way that he makes things personal and makes it a very human story within the context of this this wilderness i think is is cool and and really the way that he describes the the hill country here is is unbelievable this is this is a scary place this is a hard place this is a wild inaccessible place like unless you are someone that knows the land you're you're doomed and i agree and and to sort of piggyback on that howard again makes great use of descriptions of the landscape that sort of make you think about how groups of people might use the landscape as a a tactical advantage Uh or how you might circumvent someone who is thinking tactically about how to, you know, uh, ambush people in a gorge versus keep into the ridge tops. Yep. Um, and the thing that I liked was, was that tactical aspect of this story 
specifically when we get to the uh, castle. And uh, this castle, uh, midway through the story, is, is where the majority of the story actually takes place. Uh-huh. And it is situated in such a way that it is between Aftokhan's forces and this village that um, El Borak is protecting. And it is unassailable, right, with a large force. El Borak was able to take it with a small force, and he sort of snuck in by himself and took the castle with one or two, uh, well, with just by himself with one or two people guarding it. Um, and so it's a very tactically uh, advantageous castle to hold, and it single-handedly is sort of uh, dictating and commanding the narrative thrust of the story. Yeah. Like possession of this castle is causing uh, a lot of the conflict. And, and I just liked that. I liked the thought of, you know, the Aftokhan can't assail us here. He doesn't have the force that's capable of, of taking it, nor can he risk going around us because if he does that, then he will have to leave some of his men back here to guard the castle, and then we will be at his back, right? We'll we'll be able to sneak up behind him. So this is this is some cool like if you were into war gaming, yeah, <laughs> like, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, and this, it's interesting because we're talking about hundreds of men. We're not talking yeah. about like not thousands thousands, yeah. of armies. This is like a hundred and fifty to forty dudes. It, yeah. It's it, it, there's not a lot of people at play here. Yeah, and and that makes all of the resources all that much more carry all that much more weight. I think, like when we get into the castle and Willoughby sees all of the rifles and all the guns, uh, the the small arms and mm-hmm. uh, ammo and and stuff that they have, it 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 carries a lot of weight because there's only forty guys in El Borak's party, right, in his band, right. And I think the we're dealing with relatively small numbers of people, but it has gravity on the basis of El Borak just wants this showdown to be between him and the antagonist. And it's just not happened, right? Like, this is one of those circumstances where... uh, two individuals on an open field of battle could solve everything that's at stake here, but it just hasn't happened yet, you know, because of one individual. One's a coward. Yeah. Right. Backing out or trying to, to play otherwise. And that is, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I think that's another level to it that, uh, that I did appreciate. It comes down to chess between two individuals again i think that i want to spin off of what you just said and talk about another aspect of the story that i liked which was when we read war stories we often hear these big stories of hundreds of people dying or you know how it is lots of defense or there there was all this death and destruction around me in this story we have a war going on but sort of the three main action points are one-on-one murders where El Borak is cornered by one individual or another 
and he has to kill them with his bare hands or with a sharp edged weapon. And it's, it's interesting to me, this idea that we're in this point in history where things are, there are guns, but there are still swords, there are horses, but things are changing and everything in El Borak's version of this story kind of hinges on him accidentally running into two guys and purposely running into another and then killing them as efficiently as possible. Either this guy that was kind of a dandy that caught him as he was trying to escape or the uh, from the first sort of uh, betrayal scene where Afdal Khan killed his friend where he was trying to steal the horses and he gets caught by one man. And then finally where Afdal Khan and him kind of have it out finally and have their murder. So we get these three very visceral, very awful depictions of knives going into people's bodies and swords cutting people near and two. Visceral. That's the word you use. That's absolutely the way that, that I felt about it too. Like there's a, there's a statement at least at one of those, those kill scenes where Howard writes something along the lines of, and the knife went in again and again and again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and with that simple statement, you have a mental image of just how horrible that is. And how hard of a man we must be talking about, right? Uh, Yeah. That could do that. So I guess mine's murder. That's that's my other one. (laughs) Well, it it is visceral and and it is uh, some of the the most vivid prose that we've seen from Howard, I think um, made all the more pronounced because uh, I think we, we came off of the, the Monday story, which we didn't really enjoy all that much, but also, you know, the, the things, the flaws in the story, the things we didn't enjoy so much are, are so much more pronounced because of, the, the the stellar pros that are also in the same story. Yeah. So for my faults of this story, I think I, I love this worlds more than the Monday story. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. You did it, Howard. You beat your hero. So I, I don't have anything else on my list in terms of specific things to discuss no. regarding the story. Do you guys? I don't. I mean, I feel like we've really, we've, we've circled around a lot of the major points that at least I had. I mean, yeah, the, we covered, we covered a lot of ground here. We've covered both the, the narrative structure as well as the, the writing. So I think we're hitting our bases. Yeah. John? I concur. Okay. I want to hear what the people think are their things that they enjoy the most about this story. I'd like to hear that too. But how, how could they possibly communicate with us, Josh? Uh, they could commune with us by coming to HTTP colon forward slash forward slash the Chromecast.blogspot.com. Uh, from there, you can find an email address, but I'll give it to you anyway. It's the Chromecast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook. You can find us on there. We're facebook.com slash the Chromecast. 
We're at the Chromecast on Twitter. We're at the Chromecast on Instagram. And you can call us and leave a voicemail. 859-429-CROM. Nice. Many, Don't make us Instagram influencers. <laughs> many options on the table in Ta- terms of... <laughs> Tastemakers, trendsetters. Yeah, I just I just <laughs> posted Insta. I posted some pictures of us recording this episode. <laughs> Josh, I don't want people to see my face. Is, oh, it's too bad. Is it me in my sweatpants? It's you. Well, me in my yoga pants. As far as they know, you're not wearing any pants. Mm. They would never know. Have hey, we ever done a pantsless podcast? Well, we talk about it a lot. So <laughs> before we sign off, I wanted to do one more thing. It is the holiday season. This this episode should come out around New Year's, and next year is 2019. The podcast will turn six years old. Dang. Which is pretty crazy to think about. Can almost drink. <laughs> it's it, Well, it's in kindergarten. <laughs> um, yeah, like I said. What are your, what, what should our podcast resolutions be for 2019? Let's see. I have one that's easily attainable, but let's think about some other other things as well. Um, I want the Conan episodes to be easily accessible. And for folks who follow us, uh, you may notice that our old episodes keep dropping off. For every new episode that we put onto our feed, another episode falls off. And so I want to make sure those Conan episodes stay accessible. And even though you can find all of our materials on archive.org. Um, I will work on a Google drive folder that's uh, public and accessible to whoever wants it. So you can download all of those all at once if you want them and have a, a one-stop place to listen to those uh, Conan episodes. It's a cool idea, dude. Thanks. I also want to check out the, uh, the new Marvel Conan stuff, even though there's some, uh, there, there's some vocal dissenters uh, out there. I, I, I want to see the stories that are going to be told, uh, even with the Avengers crossover. I just, um, I'm curious and I want to see what happens. And if nothing else, uh, this is keeping Robert E. Howard in the, the public spotlight. And I think only good will come of that. Um, and Jason Aaron, I trust. Yeah, I trust Jason Aaron. And uh, Robert E. Howard days, question mark? I don't know yet. Um, we'll have to make that decision a little bit later down the road, but, uh, that is something that will happen. <laughs> Our days, whether we're there or not. Yeah, that's right. John, did you think of one? Luke, did I, you think of I've one? I've got one that's kind of dorky, I guess. <laughs> is it not too, that, is it too dorky to share on this podcast? <laughs> it is. It, I, now that you say that you're right. Um, I would like us to make a radio drama. Kind of like what we put up once for Mark Finn yeah. and his Violet City music players, uh-huh. uh, radio players. I think it would be cool if we did a little interpretation of a Howard story. Uh, I know that we've we've dabbled in things like that before, but I think it would be cool to do something with some production. That'd be fun. I don't know if it's a 2019 goal or if it's something that we should practice on, but it could be a resolution. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. We here are resolved. That's right. I've got I've got two. Okay. My first one is let's put out twenty four episodes. I mean, we were consistently putting out good content, but I guess just to keep the train rolling, uh, uh, 
a resolution that I would have would be, you know, every couple of weeks we're getting content out yeah. and we're, we're hitting benchmarks. We're making it, making it happen. So, uh, that's, that's one thing. Like basically let's just keep on keeping on. <laughs> that's, that's, that's an episode every two weeks. And that's basically like, I guess when it all comes down to it, that's what I want to see. Like that we just keep getting, uh, on the, on the mics and talking about these stories mm-hmm. and doing that. And that's, that's really what I am most excited and, and motivated. Like, let's keep that going. Like that's the, that's the thing. I guess the other thing, uh, is in terms of the bourbon and barbarians, go ahead and wrap up, uh, one more module slash season of a trilogy of sorts just to get that knocked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, uh, that's something that I would like to do. And so, so that would be the other thing. And that would be like icing on top of the 24 episodes. Cause I want us to be able to, just like El Borat kills three times in the story. <laughs> Luke wants to kill three times. <laughs> uh, Luke, do you feel pressure to make this B and B thing a, a trilogy in this, this day and age of trilogies? I think I do. And as far as that's how I kind of think about stories myself, I keep saying over and over again, like with, with students and mentoring and just talking about stories that there's magic in the number three and keep it simple, stupid and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I really do think that there needs to be a third act to, uh, to that, that sort of cycle of material. Mm. I don't know if anybody else gets any, any resolution from the first or the second act. I do because I kind of know where I'm going with it. And selfishly, I kind of understand the narrative arc that I'm thinking about, but that's me and I'm, I'm making sense of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I really do feel like we need something in the, the final round to, to maybe stick the landing. I don't know if we'll stick the landing. We'll, we'll, we'll make a landing. We'll, crash and burger we'll <laughs> if, we'll sort of bring it down like sully style like one of the two like we're gonna we're gonna make it happen but <laughs> sully, style. sully style or we're gonna crash and burn i mean i'm sorry airplane crashes i mean i, I don't know how else to say that like i'm not no dude I'm not trying to fine. say that bad i'm just using horrible metaphors and like slang terms my, la- my language is not great uh <laughs> Or maybe it's superlative. I don't know. But I do want to bring in a third module and a third act to the larger Borderlands, like, B&B setting thing. Milieu. Milieu. So let's do that. We'll do that. And we'll put out 24 episodes and we'll just keep on keeping on. Yeah. That's all all I want to do is living, man. (laughs) L-I-V-I-N. McConaughey is my spirit animal. <laughs> McConaughey is my Patronus. <laughs> that is awesome. Yep, I can see it. Um, so that's what you can expect from us in 2019. We hope everybody had a happy holidays. We hope you're having a, a great new year, uh, at least a, a start to the new year. And uh, we will see you a little bit further down the road, John. To the east. Shallon land, a young 
Josh, what'd you have for dinner, then, dude? Yeah, what was for dinner? Beef stew. Nice. No sh. For true. Carrots. Carrots, potatoes, potatoes? and beef. Like oh root vegetables Bre- and the beef. Bread and butter as well. Nice. You had like soft bread with the butter. Mm-hmm. Jeez. White bread. <laughs> Easy there. 
Easy there.